Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast is George Philander. George is a giant in climate science, and it was truly an honor to record this conversation. George is best known for his critical contributions to our understanding of the El Nino Southern Oscillation Phenomenon, or ENSO as we call it in the field. Besides his fundamental scientific advances on that problem, he's also credited with giving the name La Nina to the events in which the equatorial eastern Pacific is anomalously cold rather than warm, that is, the opposite-signed counterparts to El Nino events. George became a physical oceanographer as a graduate student at Harvard, and then briefly did a postdoc with Jewel Charney at MIT, before moving to Princeton, where he spent the rest of his career, first at NOAA's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, and then as a professor at Princeton University, from where he retired a few years ago. So, as a young scientist, when he was starting out in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the late 1960s and early 70s, and particularly once he entered Charney's orbit, George was in the same cohort as Mark Kane and Ed Sarachik, both of whom were guests on the podcast last season. Both of them also became famous for their work on El Nino and the theory underlying it, and George appeared as an important character in Mark's and Ed's recollections of that time. So among many other reasons I wanted to talk to George was to get his perspective on that same history. In 2017, George Philander and Mark Kane jointly received the Vettelson Prize, considered by some to be the Earth Sciences' closest equivalent to a Nobel Prize, for their work on ENSO. But George's contributions are not limited to ENSO. He's worked on a number of other topics, perhaps the most important being his work in paleoclimatology, the science of climates in the distant past. George was one of the first theorists to look seriously at proxy observations for the state of the tropical Pacific during the Pliocene, two to three million years ago, and to try to understand those in terms of coupled ocean atmosphere dynamics. George was born and raised in South Africa under apartheid, and he talks about how his interest in science began there when he found mathematics to be an escape from, in his understated words, the irrationalities of that system. So when he came to the U.S. as a graduate student, This was not just an educational and career opportunity, but an escape from the oppressive system in which he lived up to that point. George talks about the freedom and the satisfaction of this period where he matured into a great scientist in his new country, but also the isolation of being so far from home. George also describes the understanding he slowly came to in his years in the United States that our country had, as he says, its own form of apartheid, although he was shielded from it by the elite academic institutions he was part of, and how he ultimately came to the view that, quote, you cannot divorce your social concerns from your professional activities, end quote. Decades later, that recognition led George back to South Africa, where he spent a few years in the 2000s, and we talked for a while about his activities there. His views on who gets an education in science and how and what it means are informed by his own experiences in both his countries, And in turn, those views inform his understanding of the climate crisis as a social and political problem. George is the author of two books aimed at non-scientists, Our Affair with El Nino, How We Transformed an Enchanting Peruvian Current into a Global Climate Hazard, and Is the Temperature Rising? The Uncertain Science of Global Warming. This is an indicator that he has thought more than most scientists have about how our science interacts with the larger world and how we might make that interaction better. That's what this podcast is about, 
as you know if you've been listening before now. So when I asked George to do this interview, he was ready. And I think you'll be able to hear that in the depth and scope of what he has to say. One technical note, due to some difficulties we had with the software I've been using for other remote interviews during this pandemic, we ended up recording this one directly from Zoom, so the sound quality is not great. But if you listen, I hope you'll agree that it's worth bearing with us. So that said, without further ado, here's my conversation with George Philander. Okay. Thank you so much, George, for doing this. Well, this is my pleasure. Uh, I have a need to actually talk about these issues. At the moment, I'm quite confused about what's going on. Good. Uh, Good. So what, what I was hoping to do, if you're willing, is start with your biography. Uh, yeah. Uh, a brief summary. Well, it's only in the retrospect I to divide my life into three phases. Okay. But I only became aware of this quite recently. Uh, the first phase I call the South Africa one, and that continued up to the age of early twenties. Okay. The second phase I moved to the U.S. Okay. And uh, all went very well until the sort of late eighties. And for a while, it took me a while to appreciate what had changed. But I found myself looking at the past differently. And so the third part is where I'm now, trying to sort out what is going on. I found myself rather confused about what's happening. And obviously influenced by what's happened in the US over the past year and more generally over the last several years. Yeah. Politically, I simply don't understand how, given all scientists accomplished over the past century, I mean, the two of us speaking would be considered a miracle if we go back to the 60s, that the public nonetheless has lost confidence in science. Yeah. I find that rather perplexing. I'm trying to sort out what happened. Yeah. So I, could, I go back to my beginning in South Africa and it was a strange place because of the apartheid policies. And I basically lived in two worlds that didn't really intersect. Uh, the one was sort of the social world, which was subject to very strange laws. And at the same time, I was becoming a scientist. And the world of science seemed uh, an escape from the irrationalities of the apartheid laws. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell one brief story that made the big impression on me at the time. I, I was sent to a post office to get some stamps. And when I approached the building, I must have been 10, 11 years old. When I approached the building, there were, uh, it was a door, you enter. But the moment you entered, I had to go and buy some stamps. There were two lines, two different windows next to each other. And the one line was strictly for white people and the other line was for everybody else. And South Africa has a very diverse population and everybody else is, it was generally called non-whites. And it would be everything from Africans who further got subdivided and so forth, to cause us and Zulus, Indians. Uh, my group was called Colors. Uh, 
all those had to be in the other line. And it perplexed me that I could stand next to a, a white person who was in the line for the other window, but I couldn't stand behind or in front of him. Mm. The, the people in front or behind me were the, were the non-whites. And this made no sense whatsoever. And it was a rather trivial observation until you stepped outside where it became even more arbitrary and became quite cruel. The laws would tell you where you could live, where you could go to the beach, sit on the bus, go to school and so forth. So the, the post office was just a, a, a trivial example of how ridiculous these laws were. And then at the same time in school, I was learning some algebra. We were solving quadratic equations. And the solution to the quadratic equation, if you made a graph, is a parabola. Mm -hmm. And then one day the teacher, we were watching some children play with a ball, and he pointed out that the trajectory of the ball is a parabola. Yeah. And so the ball is was also subject to very strict laws, but the, the laws seem to be beautiful. All balls traveling on their own through the air have to satisfy the solution to a parabolic equation. And it, 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 then you could go on with mathematics. And so in South Africa to me, mathematics became an escape from the, the irrational laws of apartheid. And I saw these as two entirely different worlds. So first of all, what city were you? From? Cape Town. And, and, uh, the, the city of, that I mentioned, the post office incident, were visiting my grandparents at the time uh -huh. in some fishing village. As well. I see. Yeah. And what did, what did your folks do? What did your parents do? They were teachers. Uh -huh. uh, both, uh, my, my father was a high school teacher. And basically, the jobs are restricted in South Africa. Yeah. And so the, the, so the highest you could aim for was actually to be a teacher. There were no real um, non-white businessmen or anything of the sort. Uh, the, the government dictated what jobs you were qualified for. And the, as I said, the teaching position was the one that left you the most freedom and uh, a reasonable salary. Yeah. And how did you get interested in science in the first place? Was it just to, as an escape from apartheid laws or did you have some, some no, of it? Oh, no, no, nobody in my family. I just had some natural ability to solve equations. Uh, oh, okay. I could move symbols around. So you just found you were good at it, and that was, yeah. That's, that's it, yeah. And how did the opportunity come about to go to the U.S.? How did that, that couldn't have happened to everybody. How did that? Oh, it's a bit of a complicated story. Uh, so, so the schools were segregated. However, there were no non-white universities as such for oh. a long time. Yeah. There were a few historical ones. Uh, the one where Mandela went, Fort Hare, and a few hundred miles to the east of Cape Town, hmm. was there for a long time. But otherwise, you'd go to a white university. But there were very few students. I went to the University of Cape Town, and the, the student body at the time was for about 5,000 students or so. And hmm. there may have been a dozen not white students. Wow. And it was, you know, obviously, you did not participate in any social life. So it was a matter of going to classes and going back home. But I mean, so what, what enabled you to get in where almost nobody else who wasn't white could? Was it you just an absolutely outstanding student must have been? Or was there some other thing? To well, uh, South Africa is one of those countries, France is the same, where everybody takes the same high school test. 
Oh, I see. So you just did really well on that test. Yeah, and you had to get a certain grade there, and then you qualify for university. I see. Okay. Uh, however, the year I entered was the last year. The, the next year, they started opening a number of nightwide colleges. And so if I'd been a year later, I would have been to one of the non-white colleges. I see. Okay. And so you uh, got into the U.S., you were saying, because the... Oh, uh, so, so I did reasonably well as an undergraduate. And then I thought of going to graduate school. So South Africa is a, basically a British colony. And uh, Cambridge and Oxford are the desired places to go uh, once you want to go to graduate school. And instead, I wandered off to the American Embassy and discovered that they assisted students uh, to apply to American universities. And so it's through them that I applied. Uh, first, uh, I, I got a Fulbright grant. Mm. Uh, I had to choose where I wanted to study, use this Fulbright grant. And the only place I could think of was, uh, was Harvard. So I said Harvard. I ended up there, uh, well which was an enormous stroke of luck. And then, so uh, Harvard, if, I don't think I would have survived anywhere else. Uh, Harvard admits people, and then uh, Harvard doesn't admit mistakes. And so you're exceptional when you get there. And you treat it as if you were exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and uh, it, it's an enormous boost for self-confidence. So I mean, the, the whole goal of a person was basically to undermine self-confidence. Uh, the non-white population. Uh, Harvard it was a strange experience in that the, the student body was quite remarkable. They from all over the world and extremely mm. bright people. And this is uh, this is what in the sixties? In the sixties, early sixties. Yeah. Uh, and so, what, de what department were you in? Applied mathematics. Okay. So, so at this stage, in fact, somebody you know, if I ask, I call myself oceanographer now, and uh, people who assume oceanography is concerned to another world, the blue planet, that you a love of the ocean took you there. I had not the slightest idea that you could actually use mathematics to study the oceans <laughs> until I got to Harvard. Uh, and it was a wonderful period in that I'm basically a child of Sputnik. And what Sputnik did was to indulge the scientists Mm. And in particular, the U.S. wanted more people to get involved in science. And there was a professor at Harvard interested in the oceans. And I took a course from him. That's how I discovered you could apply the mathematics to the oceans. Who taught and, the course? Uh, Alan Robinson. Oh, okay, yeah. What struck me is, is that my social life was quite divorced from my scientific activities. And so it was not all that different from South Africa. The, the two almost had nothing to do with each other. I would go to lectures, and they were interesting and so forth. Uh, and then on weekends, I joined people in protesting the wars in Vietnam. Sometimes I even protested apartheid in South Africa. But it had absolutely nothing to do with my social concerns. So just take a glimpse ahead, what I call the third part of my career, is when I realized that you cannot divorce your social concerns from your professional activities. Oh, yeah. I want to get to that, but that's yeah, the time. That's yeah, that's what they said. It took me a long time to realize <laughs> that. So, so I'll just tell you uh, the, the big difference, obviously, between 
being in the US and Boston and being in Cape Town uh, was the US does have its own apartheid and it's quite similar to what goes on in South Africa in some states, but Massachusetts wasn't one of them. Mm. Uh, and so by virtue of being at Harvard, I was actually shielded from those aspects of American life. And I'm following following story, so I'll tell you a story about how I realized I really wasn't a privileged place and I was being shielded from other things. Mm. I borrowed the car of a colleague, a fellow student, one evening, and uh, wanted to go and visit another friend. And he lent me the car, but the moment I drove down some street in Cambridge, and in no time, police stopped me. And it turns out that the red light at the back of the car, one of it was broken. And so uh, he has to check, he asked me to get into his car. This was back in the 60s. There was no cell phones, anything like that. And while he checks whether the car I was driving had perhaps been stolen. Mm. And so we sat there in the... uh, wants to know what I'm doing in the US. I said, I'm a student, where I'm from. I said, from South Africa. He gets a bit impatient. He wants to know, yes, but which country? I explained South Africa is a country. (laughs) And at this point, uh, light goes on in his head. And he realizes that the African studying at Harvard is bound to go back to Africa at some point and most likely will be in a position to appoint the chief of police. And so he proceeds to, <laughs> he proceeds to apply for this job of chief of police. <laughs> and tells, he, he tells me stories about his experience in law enforcement. <laughs> and uh, I realized that by virtue of being at Harvard, I was being treated very specially. And uh, this guy had this uh, opinion that blacks who go to Harvard from Africa I said, are going to be powerful people one day. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, but in, in Pennsylvania, uh, most Americans don't really know much about Africa, uh, don't take much interest. It, it, it's such a huge country. Yes, into itself. But it, it also impressed on me that I was very fortunate to be in Boston, or Cambridge, right. and, and not some other part. And all as well, as I said, in retrospect, what's most surprising is the separation. So now I could again do science and separate it from my social life. But the science was much more interesting, and the social life was much more interesting. So it was a somehow idealized version of what I had experienced in South Africa. In South Africa, these two things, I couldn't separate them uh, that easily. Uh, neither was particularly pleasant. But uh, so it was a very delicate existence. And as I said, being a child of Sputnik, all sorts of opportunities were made available. Uh, you could, I mean, we decided for two reasons. The one is for practical benefits, and the other one just out of curiosity. So at this time, was a fascinating time to study oceanography. You probably won't believe what the big questions were at the time. In in retrospect, they look almost absurd. The one big question is, is there variability in the oceans? Mm. 
it's now completely taken for granted everywhere. But at the time, if you, the ocean oceanography is a really romantic business, you go on the ship, uh, you don't actually know where you are once you're on the ship because there was no GPS. So you need a sextant of stars. And then it, it's the individualist, you collect data, and the data goes into Atlas. And in retrospect, that looks like such a weird way to operate. So in proceeding in that way, you're not going to learn anything about uh, variability in the ocean. For that, you'd have to change the mode of operation. You have to get different people together and so forth. So it was a fascinating time to be in the field. The other big question was even more bizarre. The other big question was, are computers useful? <laughs> and uh, this comes from you, you get trained into, I think I know, B-cell functions, the genre polynomials and beat functions, and uh, very idealized models. And then somebody invents this yeah. computer, and all of your code and now, you don't really need that. You can simulate the ocean. Right. And so the people, there were genuine debates. Is, is this a useful tool? Are yeah. we going to be able to understand? In retrospect, it sounds strange, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the time. And then the Navy, I, assumed the U.S. government was particularly interested in variability in the oceans. And uh, I suspect it mostly had to do with submarine detections and so forth. But they strongly encouraged uh, this, these activities. And th there was a time in so people down in Winslow would be the people in the measurements. And people in uh, MIT had uh, Stommel which such people, they made measurements. At Harvard, there weren't really people making measurements. But it was realized you have to get these people all together. There used to be, I think, monthly seminars, which were fascinating. People from Woodsoul and MIT, Harvard, sometimes even Yale would come mm -hmm. and have seminars about this new field, so, so variable in the ocean, and it was called geophysical fluid dynamics. Right. So, so it was an exciting period to be there. It was what I would call small science, in that there were lots of opportunities for small groups of people to make a proposal, study something or other. Uh, the proposal, if it got funded, you'd have groups of people meeting on a regular basis to discuss where to make measurements, what measurements. Every measurement group would have a theoretical panel to advise them mm. what types and so forth. But to a foreigner especially, it provided a social life. If you arrive in a foreign country with no relatives, uh, you immediately feel quite lonely. Yeah. And uh, your American friends will come back from a weekend to Cleveland or Miami and they'd seen an uncle or aunt. You'd yeah. like that. But these small groups that formed to study coastal upwelling, equatorial dynamics, and these various things, they interacted socially. And uh, I feel one of my big achievements from that period, I now have friends in Boston and Seattle, and, uh, some freedom, you know, in India and Japan. And, yeah. Uh, if you live in South Africa, you feel you're at the end of the world. You hear yeah. about these other places. You have no contact whatsoever. And yeah. here I was with people from those places. And, and I feel that one of the biggest rewards is after 50 years, I'm still friends. I've been to, I know their wives, their children, I've been to weddings. Yeah. 
yeah. whatnot. So, so it really added uh, wonderful dimensions uh, yeah. to the quite separate world of uh, doing science. So you got to Harvard, do you remember when you, what years were you there? Uh, shortly after Kennedy was assassinated. Okay, he was assassinated in 63, so. Yeah. And, and you went to do a PhD in applied math. That's right. Did they not assign you an advisor at the beginning? Is that how it works? So you had to... Well, I had a scholarship when I got there. And then uh, you have to choose an advisor once you... So you heard Robinson give the ocean lecture and then that That's attracted right. you and then you started doing that. That's right. Was there anybody else on the fact? Was Linson there yet? I'm trying to remember. Did you know? I'm trying to remember who, who else was there in this field or, or was there... I mean, who was there? Who was uh, there? No, but Robinson was the only oceanographer. There was carriers. There were people studying fluid dynamics. Mm, right. And uh, there were atmospheric scientists, Richard Goody. And so yes, but, yes. Uh, Did you interact with him? I didn't do anything in meteorology at all. I see. At, at the time, the big scientific thing, you could always, uh, came from observation, if, if you stir the tea in your cup, uh, then, until it's in for the rigid body rotation, yeah. and it stops stirring, it comes to rest in a remarkably short time. Yeah. And you can make some estimate on the basis of diffusion, and it comes to rest in a much, much shorter time. And it's not because of boundary layers along the sides of the cup at the bottom. Oh. And these boundary layers got studied in detail and got applied to, why do we have a Gulf Stream? Is the Gulf Stream one of these boundary layers? Yeah, yeah. Slows it down. yeah. So it sort of gets into boundary layer analysis. Mm. And it, if you, instead of the cylindrical teacup, if you have two contentic spheres, the problem gets mathematically quite complicated. So what was your thesis about? Or were you about to tell me that? So there was the Stommel model for the Gulf Stream. Mm. And the equatorial undercurrent had just been discovered. Mm. shortly before. And so Robinson proposed uh, if you extend the Stommel model to cross the equator, would you, can you explain the equatorial undercurrent? Mm. And it assumed that dissipation is important in certain boundary layers. And so the next part of the scientific story was that one of these projects I mentioned the Navy wanted to study variability. And at some point, there was a group interested in variability in the tropics. Mm. And it's a strange story. It started with meteorologists. So independent of this oceanographic activity, the meteorologists have their activities. There wasn't much interaction with oceanographers. Mm. And the meteorologists culturally are very different. I mean, uh, so oceanographers tend to be, from my perspective, loners go out to sea, sort of <laughs> romantic characters. Uh, meteorologists are very gregarious. They've been, they've been sharing data since the invention of the telegraph right, in the right, 1850s. Right. And so when a sociologist, you get into this debate whose data is it. I mean, they, they go to the trouble of venturing out to sea. It's a hardship. They come back with the data. Whose data is it? Are they entitled to keep it? Meteorologists don't get into such discussions. Right. It's because of weather prediction, of course. I mean, the meteorologists had to right. do that. Yeah. And meteorologists have no doubt that computers are useful. 
Right, right. By your time, that had been proven. I mean, they were being used for forecasting, yeah. They were used for forecasting. Well, that's been the case of Van Goyman. Yeah, so that was before your time, so that was already... Yeah. But Charlie was very influential in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you so, know him already as a student? No, I told him a strange story. Uh, Robinson, at some, I was working with him, and at some point he said that uh, he was going on sabbatical off to India. I was working on this equatorial undercurrent and he advised me to go and see Charlie mm. because Charlie's interested in equatorial undercurrent. So I went to see Charlie and Charlie said, well, he's on his way to Los Angeles. He's going mm -hmm. to spend a few months there. Why don't I come along? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went, went for six months. Wow. And uh, <laughs> when I came back, I had a wife. Wow. <laughs> uh, my father was a fortunate thing that happened to me. Uh, wow. I think uh, UCLA was trying to recruit Charney. Yeah. So anybody who had anything to do with Charney there was treated extremely well. Yeah. <laughs> they, gave, they gave me a desk next to some other students. And the next desk was this beautiful woman from Argentina. Uh -huh. And when I went back, I suggested that she moved back with me and she said only if we get married so we got married <laughs> <laughs> so, wow what a story before anyway, by the way before we finish the story i just since there might be a few people listening to this who don't know the science we should say what the equatorial undercurrent is so the the water flows what you know flows to the west at the surface at the equator and it flows the opposite way or underneath you know. yeah yeah so, it was discovered by accident uh, some people with long fishing lines went to the yeah. equator to fish and discovered the the ship would drift in one direction and the fishing line would go off in the other direction. Yeah, and it's sort of surprising because nothing moves that direction in that part of the world, generally speaking, right? It moves from the west to the east quite That's strongly. The wind, yeah. Quite yeah, strong, below the winds, Yeah, uh, just below the surface, of, the surface of the ocean. The, the winds are in the opposite direction. The winds move east to west. Right, right. And uh, it's quite amazing. I mean, the, the Pacific is, I don't know, 10,000 kilometers wide. Yeah. And this current is precisely where the equator is. Yeah. It's only about 100 kilometers wide, but it's centered right on the equator. So the equator is not an arbitrary reference line. If you look at satellite pictures of sea surface temperature, you can actually tell where the yeah, right. equator is. So anyway, the, the equator is a, this fascinating place. And mm. so we're getting back to Cambridge after a while at UCLA. Charlie, as I said, was a meteorologist, and he was involved in a project that the meteorologist organized. It was called GATE, yep. and it was to study convection in the tropics. Yep. And meteorologists being meteorologists, they had organized this program, and they had arranged for a large number of ships, and it was in excess of 20. Yeah. to be positioned in the Atlantic. Yeah. And to make it was, a, it was a huge project. I mean, there's been nothing like this since. It was uh, extraordinary. By, from my perspective, it's almost inconceivable how huge this project was, how many ships, how many people, how many airplanes, yeah. all of that stuff. Well, it's actually a product of the Cold War. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was also participation from Soviet Union. Yeah. The ships and so on. But uh, meteorologists being meteorologists, they decided where the ships will be positioned, what measurements they would take. And at a late stage, uh, asked the oceanographers 
whether they would like to join and uh, make some measurements. Yeah. But it was an interesting meeting that Charlie called uh, at MIT, uh, mm. opposite, there was a little conference room, mm. and he asked me to join. Mm. And the purpose of the meeting was to describe this project to the oceanographers and to try to persuade them that uh, there were so many ships, if could they think of a program that they could capitalize all the measurements they could get. And so at this meeting, there were some British oceanographers also, there were two of them, and they, they listened to the story and, and then to this project being described, the Gates project. And at the end of the story, uh, one of the oceanographers got up, and it was actually a British fellow, and told the story about the pig and the hen. And it's a story about the pig and the hen on a wonderful summer's afternoon. He decided to go for a walk. And they enjoyed themselves thoroughly to such a degree that uh, nightfall catches them by surprise. And mm -hmm. suddenly they're in the dark. And uh, they get a bit concerned, and then they notice some lights in the distance. So they walk off towards the lights, and soon they can read it. It's a big sign. It turns out to be an inn. And the inn, the sign says, uh, bed and breakfast, bacon and eggs. And so the hen is very keen on spending the night there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the pig is not as enthusiastic. And he explains to the hen that for you, it's going to be a fairly minor contribution. You'll have to lay a few eggs. But for me, it's a major commitment. <laughs> uh, whereupon the senior oceanographers left the room. <laughs> so to them, uh, going to sea was a major commitment. For the oceanographers, the people in that room uh, participating in this Gates project, wasn't really a big deal. Also, some other people would be making measurements for them. They had the ships and so on. And, and the oceanographers went off and they wanted to study. They started a project called MODE. And at it, this MODE, mid-ocean dynamics experiment. Uh -huh. uh, so it was sort of a search for variability in the ocean. And they sensibly decided that the neighborhood of the Gulf Stream would be a region where you would find variability. Uh -huh. And quite a few of them assured us, that, so they were not very really interested in the tropics. They were convinced the tropics was not very interesting. And uh, Charlie immediately turned to me and a few other people and said, well, uh, you're going to join Gate <laughs> <laughs> and see if there's something interesting in the tropics. <laughs> and it was like being shown into a fresh orchard with lots of low-hanging fruit. So it turned out to be a wonderful experience, lots going on in the tropics. But I mean, the one amazing thing about this story, I mean, there's so many amazing Charney stories, and I mean, I've heard them from other people many times, but I mean, in a sense, it was both good for the science and good for you that Charney had the confidence to do that. In other words, somebody of lesser stature might not have been able to blow off the senior oceanographers so easily, but he was able to sort of forget about them and turn to a graduate student and say, why don't you do it? And that and that led to great things. So I mean, but not anyone could have done that, right? That's right. Uh, I must say, after oceanographers, people such as Stommel was extremely interested in the tropics and, and encouraged. So there are quite a few senior oceanographers 
who joined. Okay. But from the oceanographic point of view, if you estimate how long it would take to generate a Gulf Stream if the ocean was initially at rest, then uh, it turns out it, it's the time it takes the waves to cross the ocean. Yeah. And uh, at the, in the mid latitudes, where the Gulf Stream is strong, that time is on the order of decades. Mm. But the properties of those waves are such that as you go to a lower latitude, the raspberry waves travel faster and faster. Mm. And so Stubble was interested in that, well, not so much in the Atlantic, but in the Indian Ocean, the mm. Somali current gets generated seasonally. Mm -hmm. And so is the Somali current a speeded up version of the Gulf Stream. Right, right, right. Okay. So it was absolutely fascinating time to be involved in oceanography. Right. And Stubble in fact created something called the Equatorial Group. Uh, Dennis Moore ran a set of meetings. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. What, what still amazes me most is Dennis Moore had written this thesis about, uh, mostly about their meat functions, mm -hmm. uh, waves trapped on the equator. Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody believed in this. So we were people were really skeptical about this whole business. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, they actually are such waves. And uh, I still find it astonishing that. Linear theory should be so highly relevant. And this is this is a little bit after Matsuno's paper came out. Is that yeah, right? it was that, after. Was, that was sixty six. So this was the early seventies or so. Yeah, uh, Dennis was this actually coincided with Matsuno's. Oh, okay, paper. all right. Another famous paper is one by Lytle. Lytle made a few errors. He, he calculated generation of currents and ocean initially at rest in low latitudes. Mm. But he overlooked all sorts of equatorial waves. There are errors in the Lytle paper. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a very important paper. Several people got PhD thesis correcting some of the errors in Lytle's paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, what was the realization that these trapped waves actually are there in the ocean? If you fly in a plane, you look down at the ocean, you can see little white caps. And to think of that's how the wind grips the ocean. And to think that these things can actually give rise to coherent phenomena that simple equations can describe is absolutely astonishing. And so it expanded our range of interactions uh, because there were now people in the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. I'll tell you something, at some point I joined the GATE program. Mm. And I went off to uh, England. There was a group of people there who were supposed to coordinate the various efforts. And it was a great experience. When I came back to the US, I had a job at GFDL in, in Princeton. And one day back there, a fellow called Joe Fletcher, uh, who was in charge of NOAA research laboratories. He also had a passion for El Nino. He'd heard of this phenomenon. And it wasn't clear what it was or how it occurred. Anyway, those days didn't exist anymore, but he approached me at some point and said, you're a GFDL, and I'm also in charge of laboratories in Seattle and in Miami, and they don't collaborate. I want you to look into this El Nino thing and get these people involved. And here's a few million dollars. 
<laughs> and so without writing any proposal, wow. it just gives us this money. And we could set up a program in the Pacific Ocean. And it impressed me no end that I mean, the US is on the western side of part of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. We acted as if the Pacific was ours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you only come to the US to think really big. Uh, in the end, there's a huge array of instruments out there. This is relevant to something I'll get to later on. But uh, many years later, I went to South Africa. And I realized that sort of self-confidence, because of the heritage of apartheid as well, is an important thing. Yeah. And I proposed that they start a project to study the Southern Ocean. And I pointed out between South Africa and Antarctica, there's nothing. Right. So I told them, that's yours. Start a project to study. <laughs> <laughs> and they were intent on studying some coastal current. I mean, right, to right. But uh, you really need to have been to the U.S. to think big. Yeah. Uh, but, but wait, before we before we do that, can I just get the uh, the facts again? So, when did you go to GFDL? When did you first? Oh, uh, actually, I, after I left MIT. Right. So we missed that part. So at some point, yeah. you finished at Harvard and became a postdoc at MIT, right? That's right, with Charlie. Can I can I ask one about one story? Because I interviewed both Mark Kane and Ed Sarachik for this podcast, and both of them told a story in which you were a part of it. And I want to get your I want to get your recollection of it. So it's the yeah. story of how Kane ended up doing the modeling work that he did, which is that Charney decided they needed a model and yeah. calls you. He's talking to you on the phone and you're in, I don't know, Dakar or somewhere or on the ship. I don't know. And you said we need a model or something. And Sarachek was asked to do it and he couldn't do it. So it ended up being Kane do it. But I'm just curious if you remember this. Oh, yeah, no, vividly. So, so uh, after the story about the pig and the hen, uh, Charlie was a bit stuck. Uh, Stommel was interested in the Indian Ocean, but he's going to have all his ships in the Atlantic. <laughs> and, uh, and so is there anything to look for in the Atlantic? Right. And so he says, look at the stability. There are currents there. Maybe some of them are unstable. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so I, I go off to England, and I, Charlie calls and says, we, we need some project. I mean, what are we going to do with all these ships? <laughs> I said, well, uh, maybe if somebody could have a model for the Atlantic currents and see if they go unstable, would be. But I've done some stability analysis for the Atlantic current. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. it appeared they, they could. Uh -huh. and in fact, there are now beautiful satellite pictures. These instability waves are much more prominent in the Pacific than the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the story that... Ed and Mark tells it's simply outcome of this figure hand story that, yeah. that, that Charlie was left in the lurch, there was nobody <laughs> <laughs> to push or to. Oh, but in this phone call, you were in England when this happened? I was in the yard because the so oh. that story, the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, organized gate. Right. But the English offered to host a group. And so I ended up with this English group. It was at the Met office. Oh, like, I somehow I thought you were. Did you end up going to sea though for a game? Uh, only when the ship was in the harbor. <laughs> somehow I thought you were in in Dakar or somewhere. Wherever oh, I was in Dakar for a few weeks for, for months. Okay, but not when this one. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't want to be a diversion, but I just want to connect all these different stories because it was uh, remarkable. No, I mean, no, but <laughs> the point of the stories is the diversity of people who were brought together. 
Yeah. So neither Sarachik and I or Kane have any fondness for spending time on ships. I, I went on the ship once. <laughs> yeah. I found it a rather boring experience. <laughs> I, <Right. laughs> I, there was no GPS or something. Tell yeah. you the ship I went on was so small that uh, it showed movies, but they were at night to entertain a few people on the ship. And they would turn off the sound, and the crew would play the roles. They would—they knew the lines. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a very entertaining experience. <laughs> so these were old movies I'd seen over and over. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I mean, the, the group that Charlie brought together included people who did go to sea, they would help, and so on. and yeah. then people who did not go to sea who were theoreticians. That would be. Right, right, right. Check it myself. Right. So you were at MIT for a couple of years, and then you went to GFDL, basically. That's right. And GFDL was actually a delicate experience in that I I never wrote a proposal when I was there. It's like wow. a collector, wow. and I was immediately given an extremely competent uh, program. Uh -huh. Fellow Ron Pakdanowski, who was much yeah, better yeah. at speaking to the computer than I was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and anyway, it was an amazing place, uh, as it still is. In the lobby, there's a letter from von Neumann to the mm. Secretary of Commerce. Uh, and von Neumann basically made a strong case that the government should have a lab where people have access to the biggest computers. To continue mm. what he started at the Institute for Advanced Studies. Mm. And that was sort of the origin of GMDL. Mm. But as I said, it was a different year altogether. Not only did nobody at that time wrote proposals while there, uh, people like Joe Fletcher would come along and encourage collaboration with the labs, the measurement places in Seattle. And, Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful experience. Anyway, so, so gate ended. I think from a methodological point of view, it was not considered a big success. Uh, I never really did that. From an oceanographic point of view, we actually did find there was variability. I mean, we were only there for a few weeks, and these waves were there uh, that we expected. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole thing then continued there. Emphasis shifted to the Pacific, mm. uh, to the El Nino thing. And, right. and you were ready for that because you'd already been working on it. That's right. Um, but again, I want to emphasize that it was small science in the sense that a small group of people got together and decided what to measure, where to measure, what models to run. Yeah. And met on a regular basis with colleagues several times a year. And the social implications was particularly important to me and to fondness that we became very close friends. Some of these people, Sarajek may have mentioned, we started writing a paper. We've now known each other for 50 years and stayed friends and regularly get together. By the way, it's it's not just foreigners. I mean, I you know, so I grew up in the United States. I've been lived here basically all my life, and but when I joined the field, which is about 20 years after you moved to GFDL, plus or minus, was when I went to grad school. And I had spent a short time in um, high energy nuclear physics. I didn't stay long enough to write papers, but the papers had hundreds of authors. 
And even without knowing much about meteorology and oceanographer, I could look and see that the papers had like two, three, four names. And I thought this is much better. Like I don't want to, <laughs> I, I can deal with that, but I can't think about, you know, having 200 co-authors. So it's not, it's gotten a bit bigger now, but it's still not like high energy physics. So this was not, I mean, I understand being a foreigner makes it even more extreme, but it's not only, uh, I mean, it's a factor for all of us who are a bit allergic to very large collaborations. Yeah, uh, we will come back to this aspect in a second because I, I would call that the third phase of my okay. career. <laughs> okay, good. All right. But anyway, we, with Fletcher's support, Fletcher is the fellow who ran the collection of NOAA research labs, uh, we pursued the El Nino issue. And the high point was 1982. Yeah, uh, there was a major on the Yeah, yeah, eighty-two, eighty-three. Yeah, yeah. And what's intriguing about it at that time, there was a meeting in Princeton to discuss future work on the El Nino. Uh, there were lots of experts from all around the globe. Nobody in the room was aware that the biggest El Nino of the century was under development at the time. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, and we discovered that some. Japanese newspaper an article about a fishing vessel of theirs encountering strange conditions of Peru. Wow. Uh, and the embarrassing thing about it, uh, we had an array of instruments out and we could explain exactly what had happened. Uh, we could have models that could simulate the changes in the ocean given the changes in the winds. We had models that could simulate the changes in the atmosphere given the season, the temperatures, and so forth. But we could only do this after the fact. There was no attempt to be useful to sound an alert. And so from this point on, things changed quite because obviously there was quite a bit of flack for that reason. Uh, Fletcher said he was very upset, and justifiably so. Mm. But we had the technology and Certainly by the 1970 Nino, the Pacific was well instrumented, and that one was anticipated well in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so things change from 82, I would describe 82 as a big change mm -hmm. uh, in the field, that mm -hmm. there was a need now to marry the ocean and the atmosphere, there was a need to to science, not just out of curiosity, but for practical reasons. Mm. And at first, this puzzled me a lot because socially, these small groups of people meeting uh, was a very reassuring experience. I mean, as I mm. said, uh, these, they become friends and so on. Uh, the people we would consult with would be people such as Charlie and Stommel. Mm. Uh, there were some senior people who were extremely helpful and wise. But after 82, uh, to me, it was a big puzzle. The important people at the meeting would be ones from Washington, Birkas, mm. who came to tell us that if you want more funds, uh, this is what is of interest in that. Mm. And so there was, uh, there was a shift to science for practical benefits. Mm -hmm. What have you done for me lately? And then with the end of the Cold War, it accelerated a lot. And it, I couldn't make sense of, had we, I thought we'd done well. Why this change in how we were now being treated? Mm. And then I came across a book by the Sola Price, 
and he wrote a book called Little Science into Big Science. Mm. And I strongly recommend, most scientists do not know about this book, but it's the most referenced book in the field of history and philosophy of science. And this fellow, this fellow Price, is actually American, but he spent, he, uh, he's British, I think. Uh, he was a professor at Yale, mm. and he was a physicist. And in the introduction to this book, he invented a field for the science of science. Given all the data, you collect lots of articles and so on, who were references to what can you say about this field called science? Yeah. And he points out something very interesting. He's at the University of Singapore, and the library gets shut down for reconstruction purposes. And the professors asked whether they could house some of the volumes. So the surprise asked for the proceedings of the Royal Society. Mm -hmm. And they get delivered to his rooms. So they go back to 1650s or something. Mm -hmm. So he gets them uh, and he piles them up in stacks against the wall and in stacks of decades. Mm. And he notices it's a perfect exponential curve. Yeah. The Royal Society gets thicker and thicker yeah. uh, every decade. And he estimates that the doubling time is about 15 years, one five. Mm. And what's, what's amazing about that number is that the doubling time for the human population is 50 years, five zero. <laughs> and so he concludes that very soon the Royal Society will have to ask every man, woman, and child to write a paper <laughs> if this is going to keep up. Well, or every scientist will have to write uh, orders of magnitude more papers. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so he writes this fascinating paper that when science is small, people, they don't need much resources. They pursue science out of curiosity. And as it grows, they need more and more resources. And mm -hmm. you have to move into big science. And then you have to do science for practical benefits. And your politicians want to know what have you done for me lately, because they now have a big say. Yeah. And so this is basically what happened to oceanography in the 80s, 90s. It, yeah. it went from little science. So there was a time when I knew every oceanographer. That's no longer the case. Right. You pointed out, we used to write two, three papers a year and were considered productive. I mean, my colleagues now write 10, 20 papers a year. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe this has to do with this ranking of universities. Uh, if you want, you know, people are very obsessed with number one or 10, 100. And mm -hmm. it dep depends on how many papers you publish in Science or Nature. And so some universities now will actually reward their scientists for doing that. Uh, some countries, it's the standard practice. Anyway, we've changed from little science to big science. Yeah. And it's changed. We know it's now much harder. We no longer children of Sputnik. It's much harder to get resources to do science out of curiosity. Yeah. And that has now become this was my big concern is that I think our science is actually suffering from our obsession with being useful. And we're very intent of scaring people, telling all the terrible things global warming can do. Mm. And there was a paper a year ago by 
called Stevenson, Tom Palmer, yeah. PLAS, which they gave sort of a scathing assessment of the state of coupled ocean atmosphere models. And we didn't go into why, or what. but it, it seems to me we certainly have an obligation to produce actual practical benefits, but we need to complement that more with more efforts to do science out of curiosity. Mm. And I feel that part is neglected. Yeah. And what comes out of the, the Sala Price book is that science is actually a very undemocratic activity. Yeah. That it, it had a pyramid structure. So we can easily name the people at the top, Newton and Darwin, Einstein. Mm. But they really, really succeed because of a huge base. Yeah. And we're neglecting the base. And this is, I feel, what's happened this past year, that uh, people's interest in science, uh, what we're doing by emphasizing so much on the horrors that global warming can bring, we neglect to tell people that it's an amazing planet, the only ones that to be habitable, and that the phenomena that contributed to being habitable merit study on their own. And it's really the only way I feel we can get the youth interested in science, that we are in this very special field. Uh, the mm. phenomena we deal with are astonishing. Mm. Anyway, so this has become my sort of current obsession. How can we get the man in the street interested in science? So before we, I really want to spend some time on that, but before we do that, can we just not drop totally the years in between? Because we left it in 1982. You're a GFDL and working in El Nino and you became, you know, famous and, and uh, you know, very uh, well known for that. And then at some point you switched to the Princeton faculty and then you've been there you know, until you retired a few years ago. So, I mean, is there anything you want to say about all that time before we get into the very, you know, the last year? No, no, no I suspect you're approaching the same age. And at some point you have to ask yourself, but, but so my life at Princeton was idyllic. Uh, I could have continued, but would I have deprived myself of some experience? And uh, if I didn't make a change, then I would never. So, yeah, I want to continue in that mode. Mm. And what I mostly discovered is it's easy to decide where you don't want to be. It's much more difficult to decide uh, <laughs> where you should be. And so I made a very tiny change. I, I stayed in Princeton and I kept up collaboration with people at GNDL. And I dare say I became chairman of a department yeah. that uh, I didn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was an interesting experience. You have to deal with people. Was it, and then at some point, I also got involved with South Africa. And so if I had stayed in GFDL, I would have had a very calm, peaceful life, but I would not have been exposed to experiences that were not necessarily pleasant. <laughs> but probably was of some benefit to me. Like what? See the world more broadly. I'm now, as I said, by my whole uh, almost obsession now as to how do we get people interested in science. Mm -hmm. I'm a big admirer of what's been accomplished in medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing over the last say, 20 years, people stopped smoking. Right. And I would submit the major contributor 
was people, educated people know what the lungs, the liver, the heart, uh, yet they know something about the human body. And sometimes it backfires and they get suspicious of vaccines and so on. But on the whole, uh, life expectancy has increased enormously. Uh, on the other hand, yeah. people are woefully ignorant of the planet. We live on this amazing planet. They have not the slightest idea mm. why the planet is habitable. Mm. Uh, I live in a town where people are very concerned about the environment. Mm. And they do all the wrong things. <laughs> they live in huge houses. If I look outside, it's pitch dark, except for huge number of lights my neighbor has on. <laughs> I don't know who my neighbor is, but I do know his lights are on late at night. Anyway, people do not know anything about our planet, and I hold our community responsible mm. that we somehow failed. We, we so focused on the gloom of doom of global warming mm. that we count on fear to persuade people to take care of planet Earth. Mm. And I would argue that instead of fear, they should do it out of love for the planet. But you can only love what you know. And so they really should know something about the planet before mm. we can expect them to take care of it. Mm. But I mentioned the, the picture, if you, if you look at the satellite picture, of, you can see where the equator is and so forth. Mm. But the satellite pictures show you is this enormous diversity of climatic zones we have. Mm. And each climatic zone has its own distinctive plants and animals and so forth. Mm. And we're really proud of it. But what that picture really tells us is that the planet is habitable because of recirculation of water and oxygen. Everything in there gets recirculated. So some of you know, each of us is about 60% water. Mm. So some of us have actually been to the moon. <laughs> anyway, it's, once you appreciate that we can't take care of the planet on our own, no group, it's, we have to collaborate with other people. We have to try to preserve this diversity. But once you look at the planet from that perspective, I think we're going to have a lot more success in coping with global warming. The, the, the emphasis on gloom and doom, I feel, it's a mistake to neglect the other a complementary view mm. that we should take care of the planet because it is amazing but uh, mm. we need to know uh, why it is amazing and how anyway that's my story but i mean the 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 <clears throat> so i want to get to your recent activities now but the um just to talk about this for a minute i mean my perception of the politics on climate is that the positive developments of the last couple of years. I mean, a lot of terrible things have happened. We've had Trump and so on. But to the extent that there has been some positive change, and there really has been, I mean, Biden's program is the most, you know, strongest climate program ever for a U.S. president. And that seems to be because mostly because he's been working with these youth climate activists, these kids that are suddenly way more motivated than anybody before. And they are motivated in part, I mean, by fear and you know, uh, concern for the future. I mean, it seems like for them, at least it's working. I mean, it's causing them to be motivated and to take action and to convince the political leaders. So isn't there something to that? I mean, uh, I look at the other side. I mean, uh, this Swedish girl, that's the name. Thunberg, Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. Doing wonderful things, but she's constantly in tears. 
And I mean, but it's working. It's working though. <laughs> no, no, it worked while you're joyful. And chill, I mean. And I sympathize with her father. Her father gave it to me the other day and said he'd really prefer that you get an education. And the greatest the first person to say she knows nothing about science. So I uh, type into Google after we finished uh, onto YouTube Harvard a private universe mm -hmm. and the, the, it was made a while ago and it's a video in which a voice tells you 23 Harvard students are asked why summer is warmer than winter mm. and out of the 23 20 gave the wrong answer and what I find interesting about this video is it tells you what's wrong with our education system mm. and very recently just the last year or two a professor at Harvard actually wrote about this video oh he mm. mentions it in passing this professor likes canoeing and he goes to Boston Harbor and enjoys canoeing there and gets a scare one day a fog rolls in and he's lost, he doesn't know. And then by sheer luck, he does find his way back into the harbor. But he finds out in the newspapers the next day that two women had also gone canoeing had been lost, they probably lost their lives. Yeah. And he likes canoeing so much, he decides he's not going to give it up. And instead, he decides to learn something about uh, waves and fog and the atmosphere. And he finds it absolutely fascinating. And so his conclusion is that what's wrong with our method of education is we divorce what people get taught in classrooms from what they experience. Mm. And so what's interesting about this video, the so-called wrong answer to why summer's warm in the winter is that the earth is closer to the sun in summer than winter. Right. And it turns out there's nothing wrong with that answer. It's half right. We have two reasons for the seasons. And you cannot explain why the Sahara had lakes 10,000 years ago, which had a big impact on human history, unless you know something about climate, why the earth is habitable, why we've had ice ages. Mm -hmm. and, and so the thing I'm trying to push hard now, if I, if those ice ages were huge events, right? mm -hmm. most of North America covered mm -hmm. several kilometers, if we cannot explain such phenomena, why should you have any confidence in what I tell you about the future? Right. And so to me, sort of the orchard with lots of low-hanging fruit line finding an explanation for ice ages. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit like the, the story about the hen and the pig. The two communities, the people who study paleoclimates and the people who study uh, old models, are poles apart. Uh, yeah. They don't interact. And uh, I'm sure there's lots of low-hanging fruit. I mean, if we can't explain this huge, huge signal, yeah. it needs attention. Now, uh, a while ago, I went to Yale. I gave a seminar. And uh, I took the Amtrak. And some woman sat down next to me. And she was with another group. And they were a few mm -hmm. seats up. We started talking. And I pulled out a plot. And found out it shows Earth's temperature of the past 
60 million years. Now, Earth has yeah. been cooling and then it starts oscillating ice yeah. ages. Right. And she couldn't believe this, so she took my picture, ran to the seat in front to show her colleagues, and she says, this is what he studies. <laughs> this is what people have printed study. <laughs> she thought it was absurd. I mean, so we have a serious problem. We can't even persuade the public that we are this fascinating planet where these amazing things happen. Uh, on that Amtrak ride, by the way, if you look out the window, you can see in Connecticut all those uh, wetlands and creeks that used to be, the sea level used to be so much lower and now it's flooded. It's all um, it's all uh, glacial landscape, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, no, everywhere. Nature is actually amazing. And it's what's even more astonishing is how we as Earth scientists have failed to get the public interested. Yeah. And so the project I'm working on now, uh, I started the program in South Africa to, my job was to attract students to science. And given the legacy of apartheid, I decided you know, the, the main point of any education is to build self-confidence, yeah. is to tell these students that they live in an amazing place. So this is something you started a few years ago, right? And you actually went back. I went back. For yeah. some period. And this was before you retired? Or this was how many years before ago? Before I retired, yeah. So I you, went in, in 2007. I was For, in, for, for several years. years, right? For, for four years, yeah. Yeah. It didn't work out. Once you left home, you can't go back. <laughs> You've changed and they've changed. But you were, what was the idea? That you were going to start sort of an institute there, as I recall, or something like this? That was my hope. But my, they invited me back because the big crime of apartheid was not to educate the populace. Mm. And so something like a million people emigrated from the country when Mandela became president around those years. Those million people were all young, white, and highly educated. Mm. That's exactly the people the country couldn't afford to lose. The university leaned backwards once the party ended to attract black students. Yeah. And they dropped out in huge numbers. Yeah. And it's intriguing, something similar happened at the University of California and Austin. Uh, they tried to attract minority students, black students. Uh, took the best ones, provided them with remedial courses, with laptops, with tutors, and they dropped out in large numbers. And it, what I discovered in South Africa, it, it's all about building self-confidence. Mm, uh, yeah. Putting somebody in a remedial class is like putting them in a ghetto. Yeah. Uh, they shouldn't be remedial. Instead, it, it's a big investment initially, but get people who look like them, to talk like them, to teach them, mm. preferably their age. Mm. And it's an uphill struggle in South Africa. Uh, I'm not involved with a group trying to do this in other parts of Africa also. Mm. But I'm, something interesting happened this summer in that I started a workshop, uh, Habitable Planet, and there's a website. And it, over a period of 10 days, bring together 20, 30 students, and they are told, given lectures in the morning on why the planet is habitable, uh, some basic meteorology, oceanography, and so forth. And in the afternoon, field trips. And it's all young people. And what astonished me was, was we asked them to assess their experience afterwards. And they were ecstatic. I mean, they, they changed their lives. And I couldn't feel, I didn't think it was the science they learned. 
was a factor, but it was the atmosphere created. So the son was inexperienced, they had to do it on Zoom. Yeah. And the fellow who does it is, is extremely good, he's young himself, good with students. He kept all the trappings. He had coffee hours. He even had a dinner one evening. He asked them to dress up. He sent them. They were all in different places. He then coupons. Every village in South Africa apparently has a Kentucky fried chicken. Right. Uh, he sent them coupons and so on. Uh, the coffee hours, he arranged for different people from different groups, different races to talk to each other. Yeah. It, it was all about personal interactions. Yeah. And so in, in South Africa, even for people of different races to meet each other, it's a big deal. Mm. So anyway, I'm now hoping, can we expand this mm. into something much bigger? Can we basically make people love their surroundings, get genuinely curious about it? It's a bit like the Harvard professor who liked canoeing, mm. uh, but he didn't bother to learn about waves or fog. Mm clouds and then discovered that it was actually fun science and he enjoyed letting us things and mm. he couldn't continue. But can we get people interested in their environment? Mm. If you have any suggestions, I'd appreciate it. No, I mean, I, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, um, I've been going through a somewhat different process about it. I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I, I come from very different circumstances, but I, you know, I also, for me, science was, was an escape, I think, from other aspects of life. I think for many of us who are scientists, that's true. I mean, if you really love doing science, it's often the case that we're thinking alone in a room, you know, I mean, uh, even though there's a social dimension too, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a pure intellectual pursuit. But as time has gone on and the climate problem has become so acute and as the politics of it has become so sour in the United States, and I, I've come to feel more uh, politicized rather than less and not to be so concerned about scaring people and all that. I, I, I've come to, and my own research has gone in a more applied direction um, in response out of some feeling of, well, I like doing it, but also some feeling of obligation to, I've come to feel that I can't ignore the sort of human dimension of it in, in, and just do the work anymore and feel that I'm, yeah. that I'm fulfilling whatever obligation I have. So it's really interesting to hear your views and I, I, I'm wondering if I get you to articulate them a little more. I mean, it seems to me that besides the going back to South Africa and trying to educate people, I know that you've been, you know, thinking through also how, you know, we approach this in the U.S. And I mean, you sort of said it to some extent that we shouldn't try to scare people. But I mean, if we think about the failure to reduce carbon emissions, for example, I mean, do you really think that that's attributable to scientists being too negative? I mean, it, it seems to me that it's that, that we're we're ultimately minor players. I mean, it seems to me the forces are much larger than us. And my own view is that, I mean, scientists can always be better communicators, but I, I think the emphasis on how well scientists communicate is is sort of a distraction. I don't I don't think I think scientists have communicated it fine, more or less, but it's more a question of, you know, we're up against an entrenched system of how the whole world works, right? With everything runs on petroleum and you know, the whole sort of world order is based on that. And we're sort of too small to really, for what we say about it to matter that much. But do you disagree with that? No, I don't want to criticize anything that's happening. I'm mostly intent on complementing it with something. Mm. And as you say, we deal with whether we compare to oil companies or whatever. But I think that you and I, our colleagues, we're very privileged to be scientists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
and we, we live incredible lives. Yeah. And if you're at an elite institution, it becomes even more privileged. Yeah. And I'm intrigued. There's a professor at Harvard called Sandel, mm -hmm. and he's been writing about the problems with meritocracy. And the main problem is that until the meritocracy believes that those who don't succeed is because they're dumb and lazy and right. corrupt and, right. and don't appreciate the role of just fortune, good for but my, my life yeah. is a succession of lucky incidents. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge that it's not because we're brilliant or oh, yeah. exceptional. There are lots of people that quickly identify lots of students much more qualified to succeed. And yeah. so what can we do to bring those people to the fore? Right. And so it does require some activity on the part of the privileged. Right. You can't just take it for granted that these people are dumb and lazy. Right. They should be left to. But do you see the problem of, I mean, it seems to me that you're talking about two problems at once. One is the problem of drawing people into the field and, you know, uh, the, the problem you've just described of, of not being blind to the chance in the meritocracy, giving people, a, other people, a chance to be scientists who, who haven't had it. But you started with the problem of how we're getting people to be concerned about climate and, and that scaring them is the wrong approach. And to me, the, to me, the problem of bringing people into science and the problem of getting people to be concerned about climate so that the political system changes to take action to reduce emissions, those are, do you see those as the same problem to me? They seem, I mean, they're not, they're not opposed to each other, but they seem different to me. It's a fact the public at large does not seem very interested in science and it's perceived as very difficult and boring. The, that's why I find this video about people being asked by Sabra's woman in winter absolutely fascinating. Mm. Because there's nothing wrong with the students. I mean, they're being accused of being the wrong answer and of having the wrong approach and so on. The problems are the people who teach them. Right. And the, so I'll tell you briefly what I have in mind, uh, the, the project I'm pushing, mm. is it's, uh, each of us lives in a, an amazing place uh, geographically. Mm. And each of us experiences the seasons. And the seasons are actually amazing. Mm. Uh, any number of poems and plays and symphonies and whatnot to go to the seasons. Mm. Most people don't know how to read a map. So I'll show you a map of the globe's diversity mm. of climatic zones. Mm. And I can invite you to uh, choose one, either similar to yours or different, mm. and we'll put you in contact with those people. Mm. And so I'm trying this with, got involved with Brian Arby, because he lives in Michigan, and he runs a project in Ghana. My one in Cape Town focuses on habitability of planet Earth. He's focuses more narrowly on coastal zones, uh, various places and the jobs available. So anyway, what we're trying out now, uh, is, we haven't started yet, is to have a group of students in Ghana and a group of students in Cape Town mm. exchange information about their different seasonal cycles and why they are there. And the information they must exchange about changes in the length of their shadows at noon, yeah, changes yeah. in the plants, make good videos, take some pride in what you have and show it off to other people. Yeah. And I have no idea what goes viral, what will work. But we get to try this yeah. and see whether uh, uh, so the seasons are phenomenal. Everybody experiences, everybody knows about.
we have this amazing technology now. We have Zoom. Me looking at you sitting somewhere else, it's a miracle. When I grew up, people had fantasies about making telephone calls. Uh, I suppose the good thing about the virus, it's exposed us to new forms of communication. We don't find them particularly satisfactorily. I'd rather see you in three dimensions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but right. even so, it, it's a powerful tool. Yeah. Can we use it? And uh, actually, a while ago, I suggested to a school teacher, and uh, was it, she was actually in Staten Island, and I gave her the email addresses of some students in Cape Town. And was the girls were interested in what they were wearing. The other ones were wearing, and so I don't really care what it is that gets you interested. Yeah. Uh, but they got to know what graphs are. They were asked to plot temperature, mm. uh, and I don't care the way I, we actually gave them thermometers, but they kept on losing them. In the end, they just went to the web and got the temperature of Staten Island. Mm-hmm. I don't care where you get it, but they learned something about graphs. Anyway, can we generate a bottom-up approach to science? get people actually curious, uh, as mm. opposed to the top-down. Today, we're very top-down. Uh, some of us think we know exactly what other people should do. Mm. And if I may say so, we, we tend to be arrogant about it. Mm. So um, while we're on this uh, topic, one other that you and I have talked about a little bit, and I wonder if I could get you to to talk about it that's related is in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, all our institutions are trying hard to do something about the historical exclusion of black people and the lack of diversity, which is what you've been talking about trying to address in South Africa. But of course, it's an issue here in the United States too, that is suddenly uh, attracting much more attention from university administrations and departments than it has in the past. And I know that you have some thoughts about this, both based on your experience here as well as in South Africa. So your perspective is kind of unique having passed through both of those systems. Um, you know, one of the very most elite universities in the United States as well as your background under apartheid. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts about where that's going. The, the South Africans face a really big, big, big problem. Uh, the legacy of apartheid is going to be with them for quite a while. It's going to take a few generations. Mm. Uh, I'm hoping it's a bit easier elsewhere. Yeah, I'm, uh, since I'm coming to the US, I've been entirely with elite institutions. And, and I'm really, really grateful they've treated me extremely well. Mm. At the same time, I've become aware that they have built in drawbacks. Mm. As I said, I got interested in comments by the Sabbath. Professor Sandel. Mm. It, it mostly has to do with uh, self-entitlement. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's a delicate topic. I mean, uh, how do you change such things? I have huge confidence in the youth. Mm. Uh, people my age, it's difficult to change their minds on anything. Mm. But the youth is far more open. And we're not providing them with as much guidance. And so I said, what happened to me when I moved to the US and had people like Robinson and Chan, mm. uh, was, I, I feel my generation of senior scientists, I shouldn't generalize, but they're not being 
as supportive to young scientists as that generation was to my generation. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. But, but part of the thing is, is just the growth. I mean, as I said, I used to know every oceanographer. It's yeah. impossible now. Yeah, well, it's grown in the and from what I understand of the way it was back then from talking to people of your generation, the it's a bit more of a rat race now. I mean, you described the process of getting funding and all that. And my understanding is that it was quite a bit easier to keep a, a research project going. Absolutely. Yeah. There's an essay by uh, the first director of the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton. And the essay is called The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it was published in 1939, just before World War II. And he makes a very strong case for having both useless and useful knowledge. And much has a wonderful opening sentence. This man says, it is not a curious fact that in a world steeped in irrational hatreds, which threaten civilization itself, men and women, old and young, detach themselves wholly or partly from the angry currents of daily life to devote themselves to the cultivation of beauty, to the extension of knowledge, to the cure of disease, to the amelioration of suffering, just as though fanatics were not simultaneously engaged in spreading pain, ugliness, and suffering. That's the case today still. So the, the, this statement is, is, is valid in 1939 when they write it, and valid today. But in 1939, they faced World War II. Mm. There was a clear enemy. I'm concerned that the global warming thing, we're painting it as if we're fighting an enemy. Mm. There are these evil people who don't believe global warming and sell oil and so forth. Mm. And uh, global warming is a tragedy of the commons. Mm. Uh, you, you know, it's another paper every scientist should read. The tragedy of the commons describes how a village has a commons and uh, everybody's allowed to have their sheep or cattle grazed there. All is well until the population is so large that there's a risk of overgrazing. A farmer who adds one more car to his herd gets all the benefits, but the disadvantages are shared by everybody. How do you deal with such problems? And this paper that called the Tragedy of the Commons points out that it's a problem science by itself cannot address, that it's an ethical issue. And uh, no. Galileo said that uh, science can tell you how the heavens go, but not how to go to heaven. Uh, science is mute on ethical issues, doesn't tell us. And so the problems we face today, as opposed to the ones in 1939, are really problems that we collectively created. And the solution is going to depend on our collective action. And so to paint a picture of us versus them, I don't find very helpful. So it's interesting that you brought up the tragedy of the commons. You probably know that the guy who uh, wrote this phrase is was quite a racist. Really? No, I wasn't oh. aware of that at all. Yeah, he's listed. I'm just I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page now. He's listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a white nationalist whose publications were frank in their racism and quasi-fascist ethno-nationalism. So the use of the tragedy of the commons among intellectuals in the fields who talk about this is he's become quite uh, persona non grata because he's considered a real bad guy. And he was, his argument was against 
the dangers of overpopulation at the time. That's right. Which, yeah. which is now seen as, I think many of us see, is not really the problem of climate change. It's not really about overpopulation. It's about a small fraction of people burning disproportionately large amount of, of carbon. So, Yeah. I, I wasn't aware that this fellow was a racist. Yes, I is actually a, a very good one. <laughs> the tragedy of the commons. Uh, as you say, they consider the overpopulation a serious issue. And again, try to scare people. There was supposed to be a breakout of violence by the end of the last century because yeah. we were going to run out of food and so on. Right. As I'm an optimist. I'm not willing to agree that the end is in sight. We have to take desperate steps and, yeah. and then blame some people for this. Uh, but I'd rather be optimistic. The poor, I mean, the, the poverty you see in Africa, you don't see anything like that in this country. Mm. You cannot tell people living in abject poverty that the future is going to be worse. Mm. Uh, there's too much of that in the global warming debate, how terrible the yeah. future is going to be. Right. Well, the global warming debate that we see is, of course, a very Western-centric, uh, you know, it's a debate among people in the rich world. Mostly here. Yeah. yeah. There is one that, to, to say that we jointly created it is not really true either. It's mostly the rich countries created Yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yes, yes, for sure. There's no question about it. Yeah. You know, we can say that the us versus them thing is not constructive is maybe fair in some context. But if you're coming from the point of view of sub-Saharan Africa, I think it's fair to see it as us versus them in the sense that it's, I mean all the benefit has come to the United States and Europe and you know, other high carbon burning you know, yeah. countries. Well, uh, Michael said this, you know, so global warming is run by IPCC and they're doing a wonderful job, except it's very top down. And secondly, in the case of South Africa, hmm. previously up to the big IPCC, when, uh, before apartheid came to an end, South African scientists going abroad, people would walk out of the room and they, Mm. wanted to give the talk. The end of apartheid, the world changed, and all of a sudden they much in demand. Mm. And black Africans are concerned that there will be an emphasis on claiming compensation too much. Mm. It, it sounds as if that's their response is, we, we didn't cause it, we're not going to do anything. You need to. Right. Uh -huh. uh, whereas I feel Africa could actually uh, contribute a, a new approach to science education. Mm. So when it comes to Africa, you, you tell the students that it's the cradle of mankind. It has a huge impact on the black students, that everybody originally is from Africa. Yeah. And as I said, education is all about building self-confidence. And we as earth scientists do not take advantage of that mm. need to build self-confidence. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah, the, the, the people you see in the institutions that you and I have worked in for our careers is those are the people who have already been blessed with that confidence. Yes. At these elite institutions, it gets boosted to dangerous levels. <laughs> right. 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 No, it is, I mean, it is an absolute privilege to do what we do. And to the extent we can distribute that privilege more widely, it's uh, absolutely, we should be doing that. Uh, it's not a, Easy message to sell, I discovered. Yeah. Uh, especially now that the Cold War ended. Right. I found it a bit easier in California huh. than on the East Coast. Well, the, huh. the Northeast is very elitist. Huh. Yeah.
I mean, of course, the Cold War, I mean, it's interesting. There was a lot of uh, support for useless science, but it was ultimately, of course, connected to the Cold War and to a sort of utilitarian view from the government. The government was just rich enough not to think too carefully. I mean, so my generation of scientists, when I went to graduate school in the 90s, so in the 80s, you probably know there was this report that NSF put out that said there wasn't going to be enough scientists and engineers. And so we had to get lots more PhDs. And then so a lot of people went to graduate school and then couldn't get jobs. And that was just happening when I went to graduate school. So it was like this way, and the internet was brand new. So there was this wave of disillusioned people complaining on the internet about they having couldn't get jobs. And it was precisely the end of the Cold War that had caused this, as you described. Of course, then a lot of these physicists went to Wall Street and then you know, <laughs> caused the financial crash later by inventing derivatives. But, but, but that, was a, that was my place in this historical arc. Of course, I mean, I, some of us, you know, I managed to do okay anyway, but, it, but that's what was going on. And it, and it made me really, you know, I was very, very aware of the change in the, in the climate for science that had happened as a result of that. Okay, did we cover it well enough? Anything else? No, no. Well, uh, that's the gist of it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, George. I'll send you oh, the recording. Good. And um, my pleasure. Okay. All right. Thanks again, and and I'll be in touch about it. Okay. Okay. Good evening. Okay. From South Africa to the United States and back from El Nino to global warming, from education to research to education. What a tremendous breadth of perspective and what wisdom from George Philander. What a pleasure and an honor to record that conversation. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.